Well, uh, I know most of you are here tonight because of the items we've already covered, so I'll be very brief. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding on that. That's not true, I know. Uh, Actually, the opposite is true. I hope you'll bear with me because I want to take uh, quite a bit of time right now, but I want to assure you we're going to have plenty of time afterwards. The one part I disagreed with, the little thing that was in the bulletin, was where it said there'll be a brief time for question and answers afterwards. I, I do not want that to be the case. I want us to stay here and get all the feedback and input and questions and answers that we can. And even if that gets wearisome after a while, we can officially dismiss. And I want to promise you I will stay here myself until the custodians kick us out uh, right here at the front and would just love to hear anything you want to say and input and any questions that you might have. So even though I am going to go a bit long right now, be assured that I'm not cutting in to your time. Uh, We will allow plenty of time uh, for that. Now what the trustees have asked me to do is to do a complete presentation. I've done bits and pieces of this over the last year or so within my sermons, okay, on Sunday mornings. But the trustees asked me if I would tonight do a more complete presentation, including the biblical basis uh, for the thinking behind uh, a name change, and then have extensive question and answers afterwards. So even though I, I really did feel, I want you to know, I really felt I was being transparent from the pulpit, you know, several times in front of thousands of people that just kind of reveal what direction we were going on that. But the trustees really said it was really good, uh, a good meeting. It was kind of, they took me behind the woodshed. I want you to know a little bit too. And that was really healthy. And they said, you know, there's nothing like a meeting like this where you can take your time, you can do a fuller presentation, and then get feedback from people, have questions and answers, and that kind of thing. Now, I want to just assure you, don't be concerned by the fact that we, don't don't be disturbed by the fact that we have a little bit of a difference of opinion on this, and it's it's kind of gotten us on on different pages. Because in my 30-plus years as a pastor, I've always observed that the time when communication gets the weakest is when the church is growing the fastest. That has just been my experience in New York. It's been my experience here in California as well. As a matter of fact, if you look at that sheet that you got, hopefully everybody got those as you came in. If you didn't, please make sure you get one. You will see that we are just in an incredible time. I mean, by every measurement, people come into Christ, baptisms, attendance growth, financial growth, by whatever uh, measure you might use, these are the good old days. And it is an amazing thing. We have never sensed this kind of energy in the church. It has just been an incredible thing. And so it's no surprise that the faster things move and growth-wise, the more there's opportunity to get on the different page. You know, this is what I love about God's Word. You can read something dozens of times and never pay attention to it until all of a sudden it pops out. Have you ever had that experience? And I've probably read this verse dozens of times, but it just jumped off the page to uh, for me just a few weeks ago. Uh, Robbie, let's put it up there. It's Acts 6, verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Isn't that awesome? 2,000 years ago, the church, the believers were rapidly multiplied, but there were rumblings of discontent. And if you know that story from Acts chapter 6, you know it's because they spoke different languages. The Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers got on a different page because they spoke a different language. And so there was a need to come together. Just one other background that I want to do before I charge in, and that is uh, my hope for tonight, my prayer for tonight, 
is that uh, we will reenact a story from Joshua chapter 22, an obscure story. Let's put the map up there from the conquest of the, uh, the promised land. If you read that passage, you know that there were two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan that they came to Moses and they said, this is awesome land. We want to settle here. And he said, that's fine. As long as you go with the other tribes, fight for their territory. Once they've gotten their territory, you can go back and settle. So at the end of Joshua, they do that. And so Joshua says, okay, you are released to go back to the eastern side and to settle there because you did your duty for the tribes that were on the western side. But as they go back, they build this altar, this imposing altar, the Bible says, on the Jordan River. And here was their mistake. It's a funny thing. They never thought to send anybody to the other tribes to tell them why they were doing this. They just built it and said, oh, they'll figure it out and they'll, they'll, they'll think that it's okay. And it was taken the wrong way. And so you ask the question, didn't anybody in those two and a half tribes think to inform the other nine and a half tribes why they were building this altar. Uh, what, what were they thinking? Well, I am the eastern tribes, okay? Uh, you know, we, we've been, you know, talking about and floating this name thing and never thought to have a meeting like this. I mean, we should have had this meeting a year ago. We should have had this meeting uh, at least two or three months ago. Now, that has an easy explanation. Like Peter said, we kept thinking we were going to have a congregational meeting to sell the land over there, the restaurant. And you know how real estate is? It just keeps, oh, that didn't work out. Oh, that didn't work out. So months went by, and we know that this was causing confusion. We, we know we should have done it two or three months ago. But, but, you know, looking back, this is the first of several apologies I will give to you. I apologize that we, uh, please forgive me that we didn't have a meeting just like this like a year ago. We really should have, and the trustees have, uh, have in a wonderful way kind of pointed that out to me. So these tribes, why, why didn't they do that? So it opened the door for false assumptions to take place. And so the other night, the tribes on the western side, they said, I know why they're building that altar. I know why they're doing that messing with the name. I know why they got that altar there. Because they want to turn their back on God. They want to drift away from God. They want to be like the Canaanites and begin to assimilate into the culture. They want to do what's popular. They want to do what's faddish. They want to just assimilate into the pagan Canaanite cultures around them. And so they said, let's go kill them, is what they said. And so they gathered up an army and they said, let's go over and kill them for this, this attitude. And so fortunately, one of them said, why don't we have a news meeting before we kill them? Okay, that, that would be a good idea. Uh, the tribal leaders, they, in the Hebrew, it's called trustees. Uh, not actually, that's a lie, but at any rate, they said, let's, let's have a meeting and let's ask them uh, the reasons for it. They go over and say, hey, what's with the altar? Are you leaving God? They were mortified. Uh, they, I'm sure they tore their robes. I was even thinking of having a robe tonight and just tearing it in front of you guys because they were just like, they were mortified. Are you kidding me? We put the altar there for the, it was the exact opposite reason, not because they were drifting away from God, but they wanted to show that they were on fire for God and to remind future generations of that as well. And there have been times through this process, I want you to know when I've wanted to tear uh, my, my robes, okay? Uh, people have said, well, are we going to be, if we do anything with the name, are we going to be less Baptistic? Absolutely not. How can we be more Baptistic? We've baptized almost 100 people so far this year. We have never been more Baptistic than we are uh, right now, except for Pastor Eric was caught sprinkling a couple of people. 
You saw it on there. It was for health reasons. So, but I mean, a former Presbyterian is always suspect in this environment. So anyway, no, it was for health reasons. And so we believe it's okay with God to not kill somebody by immersing them. So he sprinkled them. And so we thought that was cool uh, with God. Um, uh, People said, are you going to change your statement of faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Probably the one that made me the saddest was uh, somebody, um, dear person, just loved them so much within our church, asked my assistant, Bev, well, does this mean we can't have the plan of salvation in the bulletin anymore? I'm like, oh, no. I mean, I'm the one that started. I'm the one that put that in there. Uh, I'm the one that brought that and started that practice. Absolutely not. And so I totally identify with these, these two and a half tribes who said, no, 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 no. And it's fascinating when you read it. They said the whole reason we put it there was to strengthen a reminder to future generations that we want to serve God with all of our heart. And it ended up being exactly the opposite of what they thought it was. They called off the plans to kill them, and they lived happily ever after. Okay. And so that, I hope, is a model uh, for tonight. I think, I hope to make the case, and, and I know I may make it or may not, and I'll make it better with some than others, but let me just tell you, here's, my, here's what I truly believe. That the name, anything to do with the name change, is nothing liberal. It is a conservative move. It is a conservative move. As a matter of fact, holding on to Baptist is more the liberal move. That's what I'm going to show to you in the next few minutes. Now, let me define my terms. By liberal and conservative, I don't mean politically. I don't mean politically. By, by the terms I use, theologically conservative is to hang on to God's word for dear life. This is our final authority. Okay, this is what conservative means. Liberal means when you begin to say, well, whatever I think, that trumps the Bible. Whatever the culture thinks, whatever the majority of people think, uh, whatever's most uh, popular in America right now, whatever the majority of Americans, the Gallup poll says, that's my final authority. That's what we refer to as liberal theologically. So I'm not talking politically. I'm talking about conservative, meaning this is the final authority. Liberal, meaning uh, it is not the final authority. Other things become the final authority. Now, here's the question. How do we pass on the gospel to the next generation? Psalm 145, verse 4, says, One generation commends your works to another, they tell of your mighty acts. Now, I'm going to say something that may sound very arrogant, but I believe it to be true. Our church is one of the best churches in American history at obeying this verse. Our church has been one of the best churches in American history at obeying this verse uh, for multiple generations uh, being able to do that. Now, how have we been able uh, to do that? We've been one of the most effective churches in American history at doing this. How do we do that? We've done it with a combination of two things. We've been conservative in orthodoxy because, uh, because of a love of God and his word, and we've been progressive in orthopraxy because of a love, a love for lost people that are going to hell. It is that combination. You see, churches that are progressive on orthodoxy, ortho uh, meaning in the Latin, right doctrine, orthodoxy, right doctrine, God's word. Orthopraxy is right practice, uh, praxy, the practice of the faith. So when you are progressive on orthodoxy, you kill a church. You just see how liberalism kills churches. It just kills them. And as a matter of fact, I heard a great speaker, one of the key lead evangelical leaders in America today, I just heard him this last week, uh, say, you know what, only conservatives build great churches. 
Liberals never build great churches. All they do is destroy conservative churches that they make more liberal. That's all they do. Conservatives start schools. Conservatives started every one of the Ivy League schools except for Cornell. Every one of them had started. Liberals come in and destroy them. And there's always a pull downward and to the left. It's much easier to pull somebody down from a higher standard than it is to pull somebody up. So liberals create nothing. They only destroy what conservatives have already built. Okay, that's true for churches. It's true for schools. It's true for Christian institutions. And, and, and so when you just uh, become more progressive, supposedly, in, in orthodoxy, uh, that doesn't work. But on the other hand, when you are conservative on orthopraxy, you become dead and stale and you stop reaching people for Christ. And so what our church has been able to do as effectively as any church in American history is do the both, conservative and orthodoxy because of a love of, for God and his word, progressive and orthopraxy because of a love for lost people that are going to hell. Now, this is an original by us. This is the early church. First church meeting they had, they had one just like this, okay? Acts chapter 15. And what did they decide at the aftermath of that? They said, we are going to be rock solid on God's word. But at the same time, culturally, because the big issue is Jewish and Gentile, Acts chapter 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That is the key. We are rock solid on God's word. But on the other hand, generation by generation, we ask, are we making it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God? Now, this is why the word of God has just exploded through human history. Every culture of the world, all around the world, solid hold on God's word while having flexibility in reaching our culture. And this is why the gospel is spread worldwide. It's the difference between us and Islam. Islam takes uh, uh, the Arabic 600 AD culture of the Arabian Peninsula and tries to impose it on other cultures. Christianity goes culture to culture, generation to generation, because of this principle established at the first church meeting, just like this. Solid on God's word, but we're going we're gonna to look and not make it difficult culturally, adding on cultural things generation to generation so we can reach people for Christ. Now, here is a frightening statistic. Let's put it up there, Barna Research. 40% of Americans over 68 believe in the value of church, only 20%, half of that, of Americans under the age of 30 believe in the value of church. That is a frightening statistic. You know what that statistic is? That's us becoming like Europe. That's exactly what that statistic is. That thing is a clarion call. It is, and, and forgive me, I have survived as a pastor for 30-plus years of traditional churches. Homer Baptist was about 150 years old. Our church is now 145 years old. And I have survived by being or thrived by, by being very slow and incremental in change. But I'm telling you, the older I get, the more the urgency I feel. It's no time for half measures. It is no time for taking 50 years to make something happen. That is the way that has been my bread and butter as a pastor. But God has laid on my heart, sometimes what got you here is not what gets you to the next thing. And, and let me just tell you, yesterday I did my lie about meeting with President Bush, and then it didn't happen because I overslept. You guys hear my, my thing? This is a true story of a regret, okay? And, and I made the meeting, but I had a regret at the meeting. 
I'll put his picture up here. This is John Stott. John Stott is like the Billy Graham of England. He is the evangelical leader. He just went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. Shortly before he went home to be with the Lord, I had a chance to have English tea with him in his office. And I was humiliated because his office was about a third the size of my office that you provide for me here. And his little office piled with books all over. And I had a chance to have English tea with him. Awesome opportunity. It was like meeting with Jesus for a couple hours, you know. It was just like great. And so you plan your questions ahead of time. And I was so mad at myself because every question I asked him, I could have gotten out of one of his books. 40 or 50 books he's written, I could have gotten the answer to him. You know the one question I wish I'd asked him? You were the key evangelical leader in England when it went from, let's go back to those statistics, okay, the 20% and the 40 You were the key guy in England when this happened. Is there anything different you would have done to help the same thing not happen to America? Is there anything you'd say to evangelical leaders today so that we don't end up like great Britain, and I regret to this day not asking him that. Who knows what he would have said or if he'd had an answer to it, but I wished I'd asked that instead of things I could have gotten out of his book. Now you say, Glenn, that's not the problem with our church. I mean, that's America in general, but that's not us because we've always been pretty proud of this, that one-third of our church are baby boomers, one-third are younger than baby boomers, one-third are older than baby boomers. That, that's pretty good multi-generational, isn't it? Well, it was 10 or 15 years ago. But let me just tell you, the youngest baby boomer is now age 51. I know because I'm married to one of them, okay? Okay, not quite that, but uh, therefore, two-thirds of our church is now ages 51 and older. That's not good for our future. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you were here in the years, let's say, just the three or four years before I came, 1990 to 93. And we remember, don't we? This building came within a few months of us going bankrupt and turning it over to the city of Pomona as a civic center. We came this close. And so this whole idea that our church has always thrived is not true. You can look at that graph that was handed to you, and it is not true. We came this close, and you know why we came that close? Because we didn't do things to reach the next generation. We lost track of our DNA. We lost track of what had made us great through the years. And, and, and so we were able to make some changes very instantly when I came. We were able to do some things quickly, and I tell you, the gift to a pastor, when I go to pastor church growth conference, I tell them, the best thing that can happen to you is you almost go bankrupt. Because people are willing to change when they're facing bankruptcy. They're, they're willing to change. And we were able to do some controversial, quick things with music and with multiple services right away because we had meetings like this. And you know what? We were facing bankruptcy. So it's kind of like, just tell us what to do. We got to save ourselves. But let me ask you a question for those of you that were here during those years. Wouldn't it have been better to be proactive and do some things in advance before we lost all of our young people and got to the verge of bankruptcy? Wouldn't it be better if we were sitting in a meeting, say, in 1988 or 1985, and said, what are some things we can do to be true to our DNA, to be progressive in orthopraxy, even as we continue to be conservative in orthodoxy? Now, here's the challenge. And this is a challenge I hope you'll take with me. Anybody, I'm 58 years old. Anybody my age and older, okay? 
let's take on ourselves the challenge to set up the next generation for success. We want to do everything we can. We want to be like David with his son Solomon. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom the Lord has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure, the temple of God, is not for man, but for the Lord God. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do in my last years? I'm going to do everything I can to set up the next generation for success. Can I tell you, I love bumper stickers. Do you know what the most irritating bumper sticker to me is? And you're going to think I have no sense of humor. I get the humor behind it, but it bugs me to death is this one right here. I'm spending my kids inheritance. That thing irritates me, especially, how many of you are concerned about the federal deficit and the, and, the, and the deficit we run? Good night. We are. I mean, I see that, and I'm like, I am spending my kids' inheritance. I'm doing that. The greedy baby boomer that I am, I am doing that. And, and that's, for some reason, that irritates me because, you know what? I, we do everything as parents and grandparents to set up our children for success. We'll do anything to get them the education or help them buy their first house or get their first job. And, I'll, and we don't have much, but we're going to leave them what we can, our children and our grandchildren. It's not about our comfort. It's about setting them up for success. And the same thing is true spiritually as it is financially. So what have we done so far? What has our generation done? Okay, right away. Back in 1993, facing bankruptcy, we did two things really quick. Number one, multiple music styles. And number two, multiple worship services. And usually churches go through terrible, oh my goodness, across. How many of you have heard of another church that has struggled with this particular issue? You got your friends, you got your families, you hear the stories. And because we were facing bankruptcy, it made it easy. It was, uh, we did it pretty fast. And that simple change made a huge difference. And by the grace of God, we pulled back from the edge and survived. Then we went on to staff for growth. And this is just a partial list. Expanded our parking in the northern parking lot. Paid off this worship center in order to get our debt more manageable. Finished the back end of the worship center. Developed an online ministry, which we're doing right now, and started multi-sites. Now, here are the things that are yet to be done. And I, I think a lot about how many years I have left. You know, how many years uh, till um, either death or retirement or my health breaks or after the meeting tonight, I get run out of town on a rail with torches. You know, you know, you know it, it can happen. And so, so I, I constantly ask myself, what are the things to be done before I ride off into the sunset, before like David, you die and turn the keys over to Solomon? Okay? First three are very popular. Very popular. Number one, continue to protect orthodoxy. And, and the staff will tell you, they will smile about this. I am so fanatical on this. The poor, their interviews are just ruthless because I just have this fear we're going to have somebody that waters down the truth here on our staff. And, it, and it's going to get worse. You guys should be happy because you're here. For anybody that comes from now on, it's going to get just worse. And the staff, i got to tell you a funny story right here. They know I have one name that I use as my nightmare. And, and, and you guys that may not relate to it at all, but his name is Rob Bell. Anybody here of Rob Bell? The younger ones may know him. Okay. Rob Bell was a dynamic evangelical pastor. Fantastic. How many of you enjoyed my Leviticus series from years ago? I mean, you guys remember the Leviticus series? That was Rob Bell material, okay? He's awesome. He leaves his church, 
becomes like Oprah's personal pastor, writes a book kind of watering down the concept of hell. Now he's, you know, kind of rolling his eyes at Christians because we haven't come along on the whole sexuality thing with homosexuality quickly enough. And he started off, he was a great guy. He was, okay, this is what I can't believe. He was a Wheaton graduate. How does this happen? You know, how does this, this happen? And so, um, and so everybody, so I've drilled this into the staff so much that poor Eric, true story, last week, he has a nightmare <laughs> that the landing, the new program they started out, you know, for the high schoolers, that it ends up being a Rob Bell program. <laughs> he has that dream, literally, and he's like, Glenn is going to be so disappointed in me. And so I've just got, I've got the staff having nightmares over this. But I want you to know I will do everything to protect the orthodoxy of this church. Number two, financial stability. That's a popular one. This is Peter Torrey's assignment. Before he retires, he wants us to be as solid financially as possible. Number three, continue to improve facilities like we're doing with Momentum. That's a popular one. But now we come to the, and there's the last one on the list. Number four, consider a name change. Uh, The first three, yay, Glenn. Number four, we're going to kill you, you know. So um, the first three are popular and non-controversial. The last one is unpopular and controversial. And I want you to know, this is no fun for me. I want to sail into the sunset peacefully. I don't want any of this. I mean, somebody sent around a letter comparing me to Jim Jones urging people to drink cyanide Kool-Aid. That's no fun. That's no fun. I don't want that. Nobody's got time for that, you know? And so, um, now you say, Glenn, is it that big of a deal? And I wouldn't be here if I didn't think it was. And I get where you're sitting. I totally get Now I'm going to show my age. I think this is, I'll tell you, the stupidest name I've ever heard. Do you know what the most effective church at reaching young adults in Southern California is? The most effective church at reaching young adults in Southern California. You know what their name is? Sandals. Is that the dumbest name you've ever heard? Sandals. I'm like, what? Okay, they've been out by Cal Baptist. They started on Cal Baptist in Riverside. Now they're out in Colton. And, and, uh, And they are just doing an awesome. They're Southern Baptist. They're Southern Baptist, and their name is Sandals. Is nothing sacred today. Okay. And, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? And they are the most effective church at reaching the, the next, and they're solid as can be. Solid, solid people. Solid orthodoxy. But they are progressive orthopraxy. I've been asking people, what church do your kids go to if they've moved away and they no longer go to our church? Here's some of the names that have come up. Mosaic, Rock Harbor, Reality, Bayside, The Met, their sandals, Life Church. Which one doesn't fit with the others like an SAT says? Okay, Bel Air Presbyterian. There's one that doesn't fit my theory. I will totally admit to it. Okay. And, and, and here's what I don't want to give in to. This would be so easy for me. This is no fun. This is no fun. I could be like Hezekiah, who was a godly king. He was a godly leader. This guy's a superstar in Scripture. So Isaiah goes to him and says, Isaiah, or, or Hezekiah, things are going to be great during your lifetime. But I just want you to know, after you die, it's going to go to hell in a handbasket, okay? Uh, the Babylonians are going to come and wipe out the nation of Judah. And so here's what he says in verse 18. 
And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And what's the godly man respond? Next verse. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? I love Hezekiah. I don't want to be that guy that says, well, at least there'll be peace in my lifetime. Who cares if they're not set up to reach people for Christ after me? At least there'll be peace in my lifetime. He had a bumper sticker on his chariot that said, I'm spending my children's inheritance. That's what he had on his chariot. Okay, now for the name change. With all that preliminary, forgive me. Now, what started this whole idea? Where, Where did this thing come from? Ten years ago, we left the American Baptist denomination. Ten years ago. The real issue when we left was biblical authority. The surface issue, the presenting issue, was the ordination of practicing homosexuals. That was the the issue. But the real substantive issue was the authority, biblical authority. Now, as soon as we did that ten years ago, questions started asking, well, look, we're no longer Baptists, so we got to drop the name, right? I mean, and this, was, this came to me from all ages. This was not a generational thing. I remember Jim Milhan, he told me last week, he said he sat right there in his typical seat with Dottie Milhan, with Dottie, his wife, and, and turned to Dottie and said, we're going to change our name. Said that 10 years ago, we're going to change our name. And let me confess to you, um, this is my weakness as a leader and my weakness uh, as, as your pastor. In hindsight, we probably should have done it right then. Because if we had done it right then, it would be seen for what it is, a conservative move, not a liberal move. I understand now it's perceived as kind of a a liberal move. But if we had done it 10 years ago, and this is where my cautious nature, my inch-by-inch approach to change has frankly gotten us into trouble. We probably should have just done it 10 years ago because then everybody would understand we're leaving a denomination that we were associated with that, pract- that ordains practicing homosexuals. And, 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 oh, and my experience, I'm telling you, I've sat in meetings with Baptist pastors that mock Easter. I remember one Baptist pastor saying, to me, ah, I hate Easter. Just got to talk about a resuscitated corpse. Denied the deity of Jesus. Denied Jesus being the only way to heaven. Would mock Jesus. That was a Baptist pastor. My wife, Kimberly, grew up in a Baptist church. Never heard the gospel. Whole time growing up. She comes to Christ through the navigators in college. She proceeds to go back to her hometown and lead the pastor's daughter to Christ because his daughter had never heard how to do it. That, that's what our context. I know different of you have different contexts for it. That's our context as a church. Now, the opposite is also a problem. The other extreme is also a problem. When people think Baptist today, when many non-believers think Baptist, unfortunately, they think the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. Now, this is, what's, this is just a pet peeve of mine. I'll go off on a tangent. Their membership is 39 people. We have to kill ourselves to get the media to 10,000 people at Fairplex. But you got a 39 whack job saying something crazy over here. Uh, oh, man, the cameras will be there. God hates you. Thank God for dead soldiers. But this is what many Americans think of when they think Baptist. They think Westboro Baptist Church, they're the ones that protest at veteran funerals saying this is the judgment of God on America. Thank God for young men and women that have given their lives in defense of their country in Afghanistan and Iraq and different places around the world. 
The other day, uh, I um, uh, the other day I uh, was um, googling, looking for a name, Steve Andrews. I, there's, there's a family that I was talking to, and they had a mother that lived in the suburbs of Detroit. And my um, uh, guy that graduated with me from Wheaton, named Steve Andrews, he's Scott Connell, Scott and Kathy Connell's nephew, has an awesome church, just a phenomenal church in Troy, Michigan. And so I put in his name to find it, and I accidentally put in Steve Anderson instead of Steve Andrews. Immediately it pops up the Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona. And it had been all over the news, USA Today, all over the place. Now this is a guy in Tempe, Arizona. Let's put his picture up there. He preaches that the solution to the AIDS epidemic is to kill every homosexual globally all around the world. Kill anybody. Anybody that's gay, kill them worldwide. Okay? He pr- openly prays for the death of our president. Uh, he also preaches that Jesus wore pants and not a robe. You know, okay, I just thought I'd throw that in there for whatever. Okay. But this is the problem. So some people think of Baptist pastors that mock Easter and the deity of Christ. Others think of guys like, like this. Okay. Now, the other problem with the name, I'll just tell you, for my membership class for years. You know what the biggest problem in our name is? Can anybody take a guess? What word? First. First is totally misunderstood. Do you know what people think when they see First Baptist? They think we think we're number one. We're the best in town. They don't know, and by the way, many of you may not know this, it's chronological. We're the first ones that were formed in the city. And so, usually in places like California, it only matters there was only one. So, but I mean, you go to Texas and you go to Dallas, there's 37th Baptist Church or something like that, you know. John and Connie went to First Baptist, but I'm sure there were dozens of them out there. You know, and so, but it's a major, we run into that in membership class all the time. They think we're just like, yeah, that's us. We're number one. Now, we are. I mean, we really are, but, 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 but uh, we don't want to give that perception. But that is just... And let me just... Can I just say something? I can't think of a single First Baptist Church in Southern California, and you, I'm sure you can come up with exceptions. I'm just saying in my limited memory. I can't think of a single First Baptist Church in Southern California that's thriving. You say, well, what about us? We've instinctively... This is nothing from the leadership down. This is instinctively people have started calling, we call ourselves Pomona First Baptist Church or PFB because in our hearts we know that this is a problem. And can I just say something? I am so grateful for you as a church. I love you guys so much because you have been willing to go through change to reach people for Christ. I love you so much because of that. And you know what? When I see a church that still goes by First Baptist Church of whatever, it's almost always a sign of a church that refuses to do any change to reach lost people. And I'm so grateful for you. You know, it makes me angry. It makes me angry when I see churches like that that just refuse to change. I, I was talking to a lady the other day, uh, a friend of mine, and she's a big Redskins fan. As a matter of fact, her brother was one of the top quarterbacks for the Washington Redskins um, in their history. And so it's a big Redskins fan. And I said to her, and she's very traditional, very traditional lady. I said, hey, would it irritate you if the Redskins changed their name? She goes, you better believe it would. Would you still be a Redskins fan? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, how many were irritated when the Anaheim Angels became the Los Angeles Angels, okay? Uh, okay, you're irritated. But we still go to their games. I do. 
Uh, how many are proudly, I mean, one of the other things, I listed the four things that before I die I want to happen here. Okay, there's a fifth one. I want to see the Lakers have more titles than the Boston Celtics. That's the other thing I'm praying for before I die. And so, But we proudly hang up our 17 or 18 banners, Minneapolis Lakers, side by side with the Los Angeles Lakers. The other day I pull open the paper, San Antonio Hospital, changing its name. That's fine. Nobody stops driving Nissans, because they used to be Datsun, and now they're Nissan. Nobody stops using their Verizon phone because they were GTE and Bell Atlantic, and now they're Verizon. Our schools change our name. And this is what makes me so frustrated, is that people will allow their businesses to change their name in order to increase their profit share. They'll allow their sports team to change their name to increase their fan base. But Christ followers will not allow any change if it would be more effective in reaching people for Christ and keeping them from going to hell. Number three, we went multi-site. So we needed, so Pomona became an issue because we needed an overarching name, an umbrella um, name. Now, so what we did was, um, we, we, you know, I put this off. We should have done this 10 years ago. Forgive me. We should have done it a decade ago when we left the denomination. But finally, I just kept saying, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. Not the right time. Finally, we just said, look, let's ask a Christian ministry to find us the name that is connected with our heritage and our DNA, but also is the most effective for reaching people for Christ. And they came and they met with us and they lived with us and kind of, and, and kind of wanted to hear about our history, wanted to hear about our values. Um, and, and, and then we also said, could you also give us the best name for reaching non-Christians, people that are not followers of Jesus, because we believe that's what Jesus would want. I mean, Mark 2, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but sinners. So give us a name that's attractive to sinners and to the sick, not necessarily to the healthy and the righteous. Luke 15, verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds Give us a name that will attract that one lost sheep that Jesus was talking about, not necessarily uh, for the 99. And the name that they came up with was Purpose. Now, this is not just for outreach, but it's more biblical for believers as well. This is not a trendy name. This is a way way more biblical name than Baptist. Baptist is only mentioned 15 times in the Bible, and every time it's just a part of John the Baptist's name. You know, that's the only time Baptist is ever mentioned in Scripture. Baptist is the trendy name. It's the name that is just with John the Baptist. It's just a nickname that people gave to those that practice believers' baptism. Whereas it's mentioned only 15 times, purpose is mentioned 36 times, more than double in the Bible, and it's in some of the best-known and best-loved verses in all the Bible. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that in all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. And there's phenomenal ones. Oh, people have been sending them to me. And they're just like, one's more awesome than the next. I won't take your time to go through all of them. Now, let me make something very clear. Purpose is not purpose-driven. And I probably should have started with that. And everybody would be like, oh, oh, well, then we're cool. Okay, you know. Purpose is not purpose-driven. The name of the church, Saddleback. Rick Warren's church is Saddleback. It's not even called 
purpose-driven. That's the name of a book. Purpose is not purpose. Now, we were worried about this. We thought, ah, there could be some guilt by association, um, you know, and yet we found out that there's no domain problem. People have asked, is there a domain problem? No, because purpose is entirely different than purpose-driven. And it was a book that was written 13 years ago, and so every day that goes by, I believe it's fading in American consciousness. And so it, it, there's no connection between purpose and purpose. Zero connection. They're two different words, and it's not even the name of the church. The church is Saddleback, and Purpose Driven was just the name of a book, and, and it's totally different. The word is purpose, uh, not purpose driven. Now, I understand that there are certain names we like and certain names we don't like. They're very tied into personal preference. How many of you have ever had somebody you know named their child something and you shook your head? Just like, what were they thinking? I mean, my parents gave me the middle name Kermit. What were they thinking? You know, and so names are very personal. Okay, let me just tell you something. Ten years ago, when the American Baptist Southwest left the denomination, they came up with the name Transformation Ministries. And Kimberly and I just looked at each other and go, that's a dumb name. We don't like that name. Who came up with that? Okay. And, and we were even a little worried, like the purpose-driven thing, because how many remember a cult that was years ago called TM, Transcendental Meditation? So we were worried about TM. But that was a fading thing, just like purpose-driven. It was fading into the consciousness. And I tell you, 10 years later, I love the name, and, and tell Willie Nolte that because he goes to our church. The head of uh, Transformation Ministries goes to our church. So I love, you know, because it's exactly what they do. They, they are known for coming into churches that are plateaued or dying and transforming them. They're just awesome at it. And so now I love the name. But when it first came out, Kimberly and I thought, what, what? And everybody I talked to said, what? Um, finally, how have we... Uh, this is the important part. How have we gotten to where we are tonight? Here was my plan, which has failed brilliantly. Um, and, I, and I want you to know, I, I apologize for it. Most people I talk to don't have a problem with the name purpose. They have a problem with the process by which it's come about. That's, that's what I hear mostly. So this is, what, this is what I thought was a good idea at the time. I really felt I was being transparent because I was sharing bits and pieces of what I've done tonight. I have shared messages. I mean, as recently as January 11th, I did a lot of what I just did in a message. And so uh, in front of thousands of people, I thought the best way was to be transparent was just to kind of share this is what we're going to do in front of a bunch of people. And, and maybe you'll remember what I said. I said, look, we're just going to use purpose as a nickname because our, our mission statement is finding purpose in Christ, in community, for the journey. And we're going to put it together with PFB, and, and everybody just do as they see fit in their own eyes, kind of like the end of Judges, but that didn't work out too well, so that should have been a clue right there. Um, and so, so maybe you remember me saying that uh, just use what you enjoy using. And do you remember me saying this with your oikos? If you're, you know, pick the bait, for the fish that you're fishing for. And so if your oikos is better reached with Pomona First Baptist, use Pomona First Baptist. If your oikos is better reached with purpose, then, then use purpose. And you know what I, I fully intended? that Because I had a history on this. I just thought that one of them would kind of emerge through people using it, and, and the other would, 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 would fade away. Now you say, Glenn, what made you think that that would happen? Well, 
Look at the names of our church that we've had through the years. Do you know that our church used to be the San Jose Missionary Baptist Church? That, that was originally our name. That was our first name. Um, then it was Spadra Baptist Church after that. Then it became the First Baptist Church of Pomona. But over time, just naturally, I can't even remember if it's like, did the pastors start using it from up front so people used it? Or did it bubble up from the grassroots? I, can't, I honestly can't tell you. But we began to talk about Pomona First Baptist Church. And then we started talking about PFB. And now we, we put, the, that was more intentional. I understand it's a totally different word, purpose, we put with PFB. And so I just thought, over time, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of see which ones emerge because that's what's happened every time in the past. Let's like, let it just work out naturally like before. This has not worked well. Let me show you a picture of where we are right now. This is where we are right now. Okay. And your pastor has led you there, okay? Your shepherd has led the sheep to this right here. This is where my brilliant leadership has uh, brought us, okay? And, and forgive me, forgive me. I truly thought it was going to be more of a kind of a natural indigenous thing, but it has ended up being hurtful, uh, divisive. It's hurt our unity. Um, anytime, you know, we, somebody has used just the word purpose, it was assumed that the pastors without authority were running ahead and just doing it without any discussion like this, any authorization. So what happened is last month, the trustees, we met for a whole night discussing a plan. And we said, you know, regardless of mistakes that Glenn has made so far, here's where we are now. And how can we move ahead? How can we move beyond this? And so what the trustees asked me to do is to make a thorough presentation, which I think you'll agree this has been thorough. You're like, Glenn, thorough enough. Sit down. Um, and then listen to input and have a time of, of Q&A, which we're doing tonight. Then uh, the advisory board um, will take the information, um, make a decision, uh, the advisory board, by the way, is over 100 people. When you combine deacons and trustees and missions board, it's over 100 people. If we were going to change the legal name, it would take a congregational meeting, but we don't want to change the legal name. That's our history. That's who we are. And so we, don't, we, we want to keep it in the Constitution. But then people have come to us and said, well, you do a DBA, a doing business as. And so the advisory board, in the history of our church constitutionally, and the trustees are charged with figuring out what the Constitution, they're kind of like the Supreme Court that figures out what the Constitution does. Um, what what the, the pattern has been is that when it's policy like this, like what we're calling ourselves, uh, when we went from one to two services, the advisory board made that decision. When we went from two to three services, advisory board made that decision. So the trustees have asked that, that we would take input tonight and then that the, we would bring it before the advisory board, which is, like I said, over 100 people that have been selected from the church. They're kind of like your Congress. Bad analogy. Sorry about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, had them till that, you know. So, um, 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 so we'll be back here in 10 years, you know. But, um, but, but they're kind of like your elected rep representatives to make these kind of policy decisions. Now, let me just make some final thoughts. Uh, let me just tell you something that I think is very indicative. I can't think of a single church plant in the last 20 years 
that has ever used a denominational name. The only exception is um, Spanish-speaking churches. Spanish-speaking Baptist churches have kept the Baptist in. But as far as you know, English-speaking churches, I can't think of a single church plant in the last one. In Southern California, now maybe in the Bible Belt. Now there are different rules in the Bible Belt. John, you want to say amen to that? Connie, John, Connie, say amen with a Texas accent if, if possible. Okay. There are different rules in the Bible Belt. But as far as Southern California, I don't know of a single church plant. Nobody starting a church to, to reach this generation of people would use first or use Baptist. They would just not use that. Okay. Almost all the effective churches in Southern California have already done this. We are not on the bleeding edge of this. We are late adopters because you have a late adopting pastor. You have a coward for a pastor is what you have. Okay. And, and, and let me just give you one example of what I'm talking about here. Okay. Um, this is the church that I would say we admire the most as a congregation, and they are the most like us. And that is uh, Shadow Mountain Community Church, okay, down towards uh, with David, Dr. David Jeremiah. How many are familiar with the ministry of Dr. David? If you're not familiar, he's the gold standard for traditional Bible authoritative teaching, Bible teaching. I mean, this is the guy. He's, he's like, if, you're, if you love Charles Stanley, anybody love Charles Stanley like me? He's the Charles Stanley of the West Coast. Anybody love Chuck Swindoll, who's now in Dallas? He's the Chuck Swindoll now of the West Coast because... Because uh, Chuck Swindoll is down south now. Okay. Al- almost all effective churches have already done this. Um, let me tell you the history of their church. 1912, uh, they were organized as the Scott Memorial Baptist Church. 1958, Tim LaHaye. How many know Tim LaHaye? Another gold standard for traditional, authoritative, solid biblical preaching. He came and pastored for 23 years. In 1981, Dr. David Jeremiah came. And later, it's actually 10 years later, changed the name to Shadow Mountain Community Church. And here's the fascinating thing. This is why we're so joined at the hip with this church. They came and looked at our sanctuary before they built their sanctuary. And I've heard that if you go to their sanctuary, anybody been to their sanctuary? I've heard it's like weird because it's like walking into here. Is that true? I, that's, that's what I've heard. I've never been there, but that's, uh, that's just what, what I've heard. So 10 years later, he changed the name to Shadow Mountain Community Church. Now let's go back to his picture. <laughs> Who would say that David Jeremiah is a liberal? Okay. Uh, oh, nobody. Who would say he's watering down scripture? Who would say he's the guy that runs with current trends or what's faddish or, or what's hip with the culture? Nobody would say that. So John Burroughs and I um, were doing lunch the other day. He comes up with a brilliant idea. You know, now I'm I'm scared of famous people, but John, he's like got chutzpah coming out of his ears. You know, so John, John goes, call him up, call him up. I said, I can't call him up. He's uh, take my call. I mean, and he, so I emailed him. I emailed him. I thought maybe that will get there. <laughs> and, um, and, and he wasn't able to send it back. You know, he's, he's older now and you know, limited to that kind of thing. But he had one of his pastors on his behalf send me this email. So here is Dr. Jeremiah's word from his church to us. The only thing that would be better is a letter from heaven by Dr. Ted. I tried to get that. I tried to get that, but was uh, Bev. I told Bev to get it, and she did not come through for me. So, okay. <laughs> Pastor Gunderson, I am responding on behalf of Pastor Jeremiah regarding the name change from Scott Memorial Baptist Church to Shadow Mountain Community Church. 
Pastor Jeremiah came to Shadow Mountain in 1981. The name was changed 10 years later in 1991 when we were in the process of building a new worship center. Pastor preached several messages regarding outreach and the reason for the name change. The bottom line was and is we want people to come under the hearing of the word of God. Visitors don't care about the history of the church, though the history is obviously important to us. Having Tim LaHaye as senior pastor for 25 years, followed by David Jeremiah for the past 34, is truly meaningful to us. Now, I would say we can stack up Harold Fickett and Ted Cole against those two any day, but that's my personal opinion. Winfield Scott, a Civil War officer, established a Bible study that eventually became a church. By that time the church was established, Winfield Scott was with the Lord. The church was named after him, as was Winfield, Kansas, and Scottsdale, Arizona. To people who saw our name, Scott sounded Scottish. Memorial sounded like a funeral home. Baptist was attractive to Baptists, but to some who are not Baptists, it keeps them outside the doors. The change of name, rather than causing division, was truly vision-raising. Our new facility that we were in the process of building was not for the purpose of making us comfortable, but rather to enable us to reach more with the gospel. I do know of one couple and a single who was a friend of the couple who left the church over the name change, though they did not stay away long. After a very short time, they returned. I don't believe we lost anyone as a result of the name change, and there are many people here today who are members of our Baptist church Many of these didn't know what a Baptist was until they entered our doors and experienced the worship and the teaching of the word. I trust this is helpful forever in Christ, Gary Coombs, who's the missions pastor at Shadow Mountain Community Church. Just a few others. Chuck Swindoll, another gold standard, one of my heroes, along with Dr. Jeremiah, Bill Bright. You can argue that Bill Bright is the most, he and Billy Graham together, two most influential people of the past generation. Uh, they have dropped the crusade out uh, down to crew. Um, Baptist General Conference, the old Swedish Baptist, their name is now Converge. And the list just goes on and on. Our Sunday school classes here have done this instinctively. Just think about this. Instinctively, our Sunday school classes have done this. Pop this up there. Mariners is our oldest class. Let's hear it for the Mariners, okay? Let's hear it for the Mariners. Now, what if we forced our younger classes to just keep recycling the name Mariners? By the way, if your class is not on that list, let me explain. Okay, I did not make this decision. I took it from your own information. That's why. So, actually, I'm probably rewarding denial here is is what I'm doing. You know, these are the classes. uh, So, anything that had a 35-plus for their class... Um, that's what I popped up there. But what if we told Cornerstone, Together, Oasis, Abound, Coram Deo, Fusion, Refuge, and Catalyst, uh, what if we told them that they had to keep using the name Mariners? Um, The youth and young adult pastors, Eric and Adrian and others, a few months ago went to places like Claremont Village, Victoria Gardens, and Montclair Plaza. Uh, They interviewed 266 people and found that all ages, churched and unchurched, by an almost two-to-one margin, They were most interested in tending a church named Purpose. And this is what I pray for us. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. 
It says, from the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Lord, help us as a church to be like the men of Issachar who will know the signs of the times and which direction to take our church in. May we continue to be true to our DNA. May we be conservative in orthodoxy until Christ returns. But may we be progressive in orthopraxy as the early church taught us, not having anything in our ministry or our approach or even in our name that would make it difficult for the Gentiles to come to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.